Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. In the United States, in the 2000s, pregnancy has been on the decline. The numbers of pregnant women are falling. This is also true in teen pregnancy. And in teen pregnancy, this represents a great thing. In fact, in 2017, there was basically a record low in teen pregnancy, which is awesome. This is according to the CDC. A lot of that was uh, possibly attributed to better education, better birth control, access, abstaining from sex. Big surprise, people. Education works. (laughs) But here we are, the pandemic, the great COVID-19 ruining 2020. Most of us are bracing for a baby boom. And I am predicting that come October, and definitely November, December, February, March, April, May of 2021, we are going to see a lot of babies. And these are going to be these are going to be good babies because these are going to be people that were at home and planned their pregnancy. One thing that we know is that unplanned pregnancies early in life are one of the main contributors that prevent people from moving up the social ladder. And by that, in the United States, I mean the financial ladder. If you have a kid early in life, your chances of going to college, of making a high wage, go way down. And that's why, you know, the unwanted pregnancies are so important to get rid of. But yet the the wanted pregnancies are, of course, a good thing. Now, the population is getting quite high. The Earth probably can't hold all of us. But we've got a whole solar system out there to accommodate us if we can ever make the great leap and spread around. So I'm going to stay optimistic about all that. However, because of the growing population of pregnant women, I wanted to talk about pregnancy. And specifically, I wanted to talk about kind of a checklist. What care to expect during the pregnancy period? what things to do and what things to avoid during the pregnancy period. This is going to be helpful for both pregnant women as well as the providers that are going to start to see more pregnant women and don't want to miss some important things with regard to prenatal care and prenatal advice. I'm pregnant! What? Now, there is a very important caveat to all of the advice I'm going to give today. And that is that a whole bunch of the care we provide to pregnant women and the advice we give to these women is based on things like the standard of care, expert opinion, and mostly just the way we've always done things. Very few of the things we do and tell women have been adequately investigated in clinical trials. And that's kind of sad in 2020 considering that all of this routine stuff is things we do all the time. It's possible, if we don't adequately study things, that they could be causing more harm than good. And a great example of that is tracking fetal movements. This practice led to unnecessary stress, further testing, and did not improve outcomes. It actually caused more harm as a result of those things. Basically, women would sit there and count their movements, they wouldn't feel baby move, and then they'd get very distressed. Not a good thing. 
So we really need to learn more about what we're doing, why we're doing it, so that we can actually know what we're helping, what we're hurting, and make decisions in the future. More research once again. Okay, let's start with pre-pregnancy. One of the most important early things is to make sure that not just people trying to get pregnant, but all women of childbearing age are taking folic acid. 0 0.4 to 0 0.8 milligrams per day is considered adequate, and this can help prevent neural tube defects in children. So get women on, on this vitamin every day. The next thing is that if you want to get pregnant, one of the first things you should do is get in the best shape of your life. Start exercising, start eating healthy, get your mental health in order, deal with any addiction or substance abuse problems, get yourself in the best shape of your life because you're, you're getting into kind of a wild ride and the better shape your body's in, the better you're going to do. By that same token, you're going to want to treat any of your diseases with the above mentioned aggressive lifestyle interventions. This will help you avoid the use of medications in pregnancy, which could potentially harm your baby. And the final thing is just to get up to date on all your vaccinations. Having vaccinations and having antibodies protects you and then it protects baby later in life. So that stuff is so important. Moving on to getting pregnant. Women have menstrual cycles about every 28 days. However, this can vary. Midway through the cycle, ovulation occurs. This is when the ovary spits out an egg, which has the potential to become a baby if it is joined with a sperm cell. The three days before and the one day after are the most important time period for getting pregnant. It's possible that that can be extended, you know, up to seven days before and up to maybe two days after, but that area right around ovulation is the most important. There's things like ovulation kits. Women do all kinds of things to track their ovulation. One of the most accurate ways is just by realizing that there's a change in, in the vaginal or mucus and recognizing that change because that is one of the best indicators that you're ovulating. So learn about your body and that'll help you kind of pick pick when sex is the most important. Generally, you're going to want to have sex every day during that uh, ovulation period. However, since ovulation can be kind of hard to predict and know, it, it may be just best to have sex pretty regularly throughout your non-menstruation cycle to uh, try and get pregnant. I thought you said you were on the pill! Mineral oil is a great lubricant. Uh, it has been shown to not affect sperm movement or mucus movement. And so that's a, a good, safe choice for a lubricant. Um, there's not great evidence for other lubricants being dangerous, but I do read about things and hear about things online. So something to think about and maybe be careful about. In general, we counsel women to try and get pregnant for a year before they seek help for things like infertility if they're less than 35 years old. However, if they're more than 35 years old, we generally tell them to get help within six months because they've kind of got a more limited time and a more limited uh, egg reserve. And so we want to get on top of that earlier if those people want to get pregnant. People should enjoy trying to get pregnant. I see so many people that get so stressed out, uh, their relationships become hurt, relax, have sex, this is a process, it's going to take months. If sex is not fun or enjoyable, you're probably doing it wrong, so just just enjoy it. It's, it's one of the, the beautiful things in life. And um, yeah. The next important getting pregnant thing is to start 
avoiding things like tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, and all other illicit drugs. Now, it's probably safe to have, say, a drink of alcohol here and there, but there's really not a safe known limit for alcohol and other drugs, and so I think just avoiding them is usually the best practice. Now, when you get pregnant, the first and most important thing is to try and find out when the baby is due. When are you going to have the baby? In the old days, we used to call that the estimated date of confinement, which is hilarious because they would, like, bring women in the hospital and leave them there for, like, you know, weeks until they delivered. We don't do that anymore. But in order to calculate a due date, there are generally two methods which we commonly use. The first is called the last menstrual period. And what you do is basically add 280 days or 40 weeks to the first day of the last period you had before you got pregnant. And this will give you the due date. This is your 40 weeks when the baby is supposed to come out. Now that doesn't usually happen, but that's when baby's about supposed to come out. The thing about that is that for the first two weeks, baby's probably not even in existence because you don't really even ovulate until usually two weeks into your cycle. So you kind of count the first two weeks and by the time people actually test, which is usually after they miss their next period, they're already five weeks in. So you make up for some time with that, that whole deal. The next method, which is actually more accurate than the way we generally, or the thing we generally go with, is a first trimester ultrasound. In getting a measurement of the baby from the tip of their head to the bottom of their butt, called the crown rump measurement between seven to ten weeks is a very good way to uh, estimate the age of the baby and because ovulation can be so kind of uh, not always happening at the perfect time this is considered the better method of figuring out how old baby is alright so you're pregnant you tested positive and now you've got to go to the clinic and get some tests you're going to go schedule an appointment with an obstetrician and you're going to have your first prenatal visit. It is very important that you like your obstetrical provider. You have to enjoy them. You're going to spend a lot of time with them. If you don't like them, I'd recommend finding someone else. You don't want somebody you don't like have going through labor with you. But you're going to get a battery of tests in this first visit. And I'm just going to run through them. And this is going to be nice for providers just as a memory tool. But you're usually going to do a complete blood count to test for anemia. You're going to do an ABO, RHD blood type with antibody testing. You're going to do a TSH to check the thyroid function. You're going to do a comprehensive meta metabolic panel looking at electrolytes, liver, and kidneys. You're going to test for chlamydia infection, gonorrhea infection, hepatitis B infection, HIV and syphilis infections. Of note, if women are high risk, meaning they're having sex with multiple partners, if they're injecting drugs, you're probably going to test for HIV and syphilis again later in pregnancy. You're going to do a urinalysis to look at urine protein in the urine. Along with that, you're going to do a urine culture, and if the woman grows out greater than 100,000 colonies of bacteria, she's going to be treated for a urinary tract infection even if she doesn't have symptoms. You're going to test to see if mom is rubella immune. And if she's not, you're going to offer her the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine after the pregnancy is over. You're going to test for varicella infection if there's no ev good evidence of vaccination. 
take a breather there. That's a lot of stuff. You're going to screen about tobacco, alcohol, and drug use during this first visit, and you're going to recommend that mom stop using any substances. You're going to think about doing a pap smear or high-risk HPV test if the, if the mom-to-be is not up-to-date on her cervical cancer screening. You might consider doing a periodontal disease exam, look in the woman's mouth, because uh, poor dental hygiene can increase the risk of preterm labor. You're going to ask about intimate partner violence. This is something that gets missed all the time. I forget to do this all the time, but I think it's so important to ask mom if she feels safe at home. The pregnancy period is a very vulnerable period, and so please do ask about that. If mom is high risk for diabetes, uh, usually if she has risk factors like obesity, a history of diabetes, a history of gestational diabetes, you're going to get a diabetes test, usually with a hemoglobin A1C at that first visit. Of note, of all those things we do, the only ones that are kind of supported by evidence, or at least by that mentioned by the United States Preventive Task Force uh, as being supported by evidence, is checking hepatitis B, syphilis, HIV, RHD blood type and urine culture. So once again, we do a lot of stuff. We don't know how important all that stuff is, but all of that I'd say is standard of care, and that's all the, I'm doing usually most all those things in my first prenatal visits. You're going to do several ongoing screenings throughout pregnancy, or if you're the woman listening, you're going to receive several screenings. One important thing is blood pressure. This is something that's important because women who start to have increased blood pressure are at risk for preeclampsia. So that's something you're going to want to check every visit. And if it's elevated, you're going to want to keep a really close eye on it and treat it. You're also going to test weight and body mass index throughout pregnancy as well. You're going to check mom for, for edema, for leg swelling. That can be really common and safe, but if it starts to become too much, it can represent problems like heart issues. And so keep an eye on that or liver or kidney issues. You're going to check fetal heart rates with a Doppler. Uh, starting at 10 weeks and throughout pregnancy. You're going to measure the height of the uterus, the fundal height, if you will, which is a measurement in centimeters from the pubic symphysis bone to the top of the uterus. Starting at 20 weeks gestation, usually the uterus is about 20 centimeters and at the belly button, and usually however many weeks pregnant you are correlates with how many centimeters uh, your fundal height is. And that can potentially give important information, like if the baby's not growing well enough, you, you know, if it's big, you might have twins, or the baby might be growing too much. That's again, is something that's not verified, but it's something we always do, and it's, it's part of practice, and, and you're probably going to have it done to you. Mom should be screened for depression both before, during, and after pregnancy. This is a really rough time. It's a stressful time. Mental illnesses can come out during this period, and depression is very commonly noticed. One thing that we see all the time is postpartum blues or postpartum depression, and that's when women get very depressed immediately following delivery. This can be really bad. They can, they can get to the point where they don't want their kid anymore. They don't love their husband. It's a big issue. We need to be looking for it, screening for it, and treating it if it comes up. So think about that all the time. Next, I want to just touch on pregnancy visits. In general, you're going to go see your obstetrical provider in a place like the United States every four weeks. After you get past 28 weeks of pregnancy, we usually increase those visits to every two weeks. And then after 36 weeks, we usually have people come in once a week. 
The funny thing is, is that this has been studied and compared to just doing four visits throughout the entire prenatal period, and there's actually no difference in outcomes. So if you're tired of seeing your doctor and you're getting kind of all the high yield tests done, it may not be so important to go any more than that. And maybe we need to back off as providers and give people the option to do that. Something interesting to think about. Next, I want to talk about genetic testing. This is something which is optional. People don't have to do it. I usually counsel parents that if they are going to get genetic testing, they need to discuss what they might do about that genetic testing in the event that something's abnormal. For instance, if somebody has a particularly devastating chromosomal abnormality like trisomy 13 or trisomy 18, many parents are going to elect to terminate that pregnancy and that's a very fair decision and uh, that's a good reason to pursue genetic testing. By far the best genetic test available in 2020 is the cell-free placental DNA. It's usually referred to as the cell-free fetal DNA but in reality it's placental. And what that is, is there are tiny fragments of placental DNA floating around in mom's blood. Now, there's kind of a mix. There's mom's pieces of DNA and there's placental. It's about in a 90 to 10 ratio. But we can actually take a blood test from mom, separate out the placental fragments, and then get very valuable information about baby and genetic issues. In in general, your people are getting tested for a few different things. We're looking for trisomies, meaning that mom or sorry, meaning that baby has three copies of certain chromosomes. And the most common are trisomy twenty one, which is Down syndrome, trisomy thirteen, which is Patau syndrome, and trisomy eighteen, which is Edwards syndrome. Another thing that's commonly tested is the twenty two Q eleven point two deletion. This is what causes Dye-George syndrome. Women are also getting, or sorry, w babies are also getting tested for sex chromosomal abnormalities, things like Turner syndrome. And in general, these tests can also tell you the sex of the baby as well. One of the really commonly used tests uh, that does cell-free fetal DNA is the Harmony test. And it was compared in a study called the Next Study to quad screening which, or sorry, not to quad screening, to uh, first trimester nuchal translucency screening along with two biomarkers. And that was kind of the next best thing at the time and the cell-free DNA just blew it out of the water. This study looked at Down syndrome in particular, trisomy 21 that is, and the sensitivity for the first trimester ultrasound with uh, biomarkers was 79%. The sensitivity for uh, cell-free DNA was a hundred percent so it was picking up on all cases of Down syndrome. On top of this the false positive rate for cell-free DNA was extremely low 0.06 percent and so you're not seeing a lot of people who who test positive and then don't actually have it. As far as trisomy 18 and trisomy 13 go the Harmony test or the cell-free DNA picked up a 9 of 10 of Edwards and uh, two of two cases of Patau's. And so really a, a great test, really a huge advancement in the field of genetic testing. And it really kind of makes those other tests essentially obsolete. My wife just got the Harmony test. Uh, it was like 2000 bucks or something, but they had a self-pay discount that made it $299. 
makes you laugh about insurance when you see those things. And so basically for 300 bucks, we got this really great test that, that works really well. In 2020, if somebody's trying to, say, stick a needle in your, in your uterus and sample something for a baby, uh, the answer should probably be no unless there's a real good reason. I would stick with the self-free DNA. It, it represents a pretty big advancement, I think, in medical care, and we honestly don't have that many that are that good. So kind of a cool deal in genetic testing. Moving on to vaccines in pregnancy. All women should get the flu vaccine when they're pregnant. This is really important. Flu can be really devastating for pregnant women, and we can't vaccinate baby until six months after birth, and so giving them those antibodies can be really nice too. Between 20 and 27 and 36 weeks, we're going to be giving mom a tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis booster vaccine. And then... If mom was rubella immune, like we said, we're going to be giving her that measles, mumps, and rubella after she delivers. One thing to remember with vaccines in pregnancy is that we avoid giving moms live attenuated vaccines while they're pregnant. Remember, live attenuated vaccines are actual virus or bacteria that have been genetically altered so they're, that they're not as infectious or dangerous, virulent, if you will. And so people who are immunocompromised uh, could potentially run into problems. They could still get the infection from that attenuated organism. And pregnancy is kind of a uh, immunocompromised state, and for that reason we avoid those types of vaccines while people are pregnant. Late screenings. So we talked about kind of some of the early things people are doing or the things they're doing right away, but what are people doing later in pregnancy? One common thing is the comprehensive anatomy ultrasound. Usually this is called the 20-week ultrasound, but you can pretty much do it anytime between 19 and 21 weeks. I'm sure it's fine to do later in pregnancy as well, but this is just a detailed scan of all the different organs in the body that can be seen while with ultrasound. It picks up on a lot of things, uh, like congenital heart disease, for instance, and it hasn't ever been shown to improve outcomes, but it's something that most women do, and so you'll probably be offered that. Again, it's not something you have to do, but uh, a lot of women do choose to do that and, and do want to know if their baby has uh, potentially some sort of organ or, or, or issue going on. It can also tell you the sex if you haven't figured it out yet. And usually they can see if there's a, a rudder in, in between the legs, as, as some people say. One extremely important test in pregnancy, and one that's certainly becoming more important as the rate of diabetes goes up, is a test for gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is diabetes that develops during pregnancy. And so between 24 and 28 weeks of pregnancy, all women usually undergo what's called a glucose tolerance test. This is when we give them a certain amount of glucose. Usually we start with 50 grams and then test their blood sugar one hour after. If this is abnormal, usually we do a three-hour glucose test after that. There are also strategies where people do a one, two-hour test as the, the final test. Remember that diabetes can be really bad in pregnancy. Babies get too much sugar, they're in the sugary environment, they get way too big, it makes delivery hard, and then they, their blood sugars crash after birth when they get removed from that sugar-rich environment. 
And so learning about diabetes or at least finding out that someone has diabetes in pregnancy and fixing it with aggressive lifestyle stuff or medications is just so important. So don't miss that test. It's one of the few that are really, really important. Generally, we test mom again for anemia with a hemoglobin in hematocrit around 28 weeks. Another important test, maybe not as important as as uh, diabetes but still quite important is a group B strep bacteria test. It's done with a swab in the vaginal canal. About one in four moms are actually colonized with this group, strep, group B strep bacteria and group B strep is one of uh, the main causes of infection in newborn babies just after birth. And so if mom is positive for that bacteria generally she's going to be recommended to get antibiotics throughout the labor period and after, you know, ideally before the water breaks if possible. That is something that uh, people do bring up a little controversy because they're like, well, what are the bad effects of the um, antibiotics on baby? But we do know that it does prevent infection. So it works for at least what, what its utility is for. It prevents severe infections in babies with group B strep. Another important thing to think about is that RHD test. And the reason why it's so important is because if mom is RHD negative and baby is positive, mom could potentially make antibodies against RHD that could affect baby in a subsequent pregnancy. So what we do is for an RHD negative mom, we give them a medication Rogam at 28 weeks to prevent uh, them making those negative antibodies. Rogam is then given again within 72 hours after delivery. And any time following traumatic injury, both outside of the hospital or in the hospital, say with like a, um, um, you know, if you're trying to flip baby, if they're not head down before, before you give birth, that might be an indication to give Rogam as well. There's a few other tests, or sorry, not tests, but there's a few other things that we do to certain moms. And I just want to go over those real quick. If mom has a history of preterm birth or a really short cervix, sometimes she's offered intramuscular progesterone. I've seen some controversy surrounding that, and they've also recently raised the price tremendously, but that's something to think about. If mom has a history of preeclampsia, we often have her start aspirin early in the pregnancy and then continue throughout pregnancy as that can help prevent preeclampsia. In general, we tend to induce moms after 41 weeks of pregnancy and definitely after 42 weeks. And that is just because baby keeps getting bigger and bigger and the chances of a successful vaginal birth go down. And it actually, I, I think that's been shown to improve outcomes, but I didn't do a deep dive in that before this test. But that's kind of the, the practice and standard of care, if you will. If mom has hepatitis or herpes simplex virus, they're going to be starting acyclovir at 38 weeks. This will prevent kind of a flare in the delivery period and prevent that from passing to baby or at least minimize the risk of passing to baby during delivery. And then again, the interpartum uh, group B strep prophylaxis for those group B strep positive moms. One important thing to always talk to your moms about as they get close to delivery time is when to go to the hospital. I see a lot of confusion around this and it causes a lot of stress and women come in and they're told to come home. So talk with your moms about, about when's the actual time to come into the hospital. 
The first good reason is if your water breaks. Baby is surrounded by this amniotic fluid that's in this sac, and in order to come out, the water has to, quote, break. And what happens is you get a gush of fluid per vagina. Unfortunately, these poor, big, pregnant moms with their big bellies and the compression on their bladder, they have a tendency to pee themselves. So many a mom has come in having urinated on themselves, thinking that, oh, I have my water's broken. It's okay. If you think your water's broken, come in. We have tests to check for that, and we'll figure it out. Don't be embarrassed. It happens all the time. The other reason to come into the hospital is if you start experiencing regular contractions that are increasing in strength and becoming closer together. And a good way to test that is to get up and walk around. If you're still having contractions when you're trying to walk, that's a good thing sign this could be the real thing. Another thing that people did historically and people still do today is have, have a glass of wine or a few sips of wine. That can be what's called a tocolytic or it can break or stop contractions. So that can be a way to show if it's kind of the real thing or not. And then finally it's sometimes helpful just to measure the frequency of contractions and kind of actually with the clock see that they're getting closer and closer because a lot of moms will start having these contractions later in pregnancy and they'll show up and then the contractions will disappear so you just want to make sure it's the real thing a lot of moms come into the hospital with contractions and they end up getting sent home because their cervix isn't very far along and that's okay you know you don't want to come in too early because some sometimes early labor can take a long time and we don't know if it's the real thing so if you get sent home that's okay just come back when when things kind of pick up a little bit more don't get discouraged that's kind of the uh, clinical side of what's actually going to be done to you during pregnancy. I didn't get into any of the special tests or, or really special things or evaluations for high-risk pregnancies. Um, this was just kind of the basic framework that most women are going to see and do. But I wanted to break off now and talk a little bit about diet during pregnancy. Women who are pregnant get hungry. In fact, they even get hangry. They need to feed on demand. And uh, that is certainly something I notice in my wife. It's something other people tell me. But uh, keep some snacks around. Keep these women happy. They get hungry. A reasonable strategy is to add 100 calories to the diet during the first trimester. Remember, people don't gain much weight during that time. 200 calories during the second trimester. And then three to 400 calories during the third trimester. Women do most of their growing during that third trimester. And that's when they're going to need most of those calories. Now, as you've heard me say time and time again, obesity is such a big deal, and we have so many morbidly obese women. There have been many women who have carried children all the way to term not knowing they're pregnant. In my clinical practice, I've seen one woman who thought she had to go poop, and she went to the toilet, and the baby's head was crowning. I mean, this stuff happens, guys. It's real. But some women that are very morbidly obese might actually be told that they should lose weight throughout their whole pregnancy. It seems crazy to hear that, but that's true. As far as your diet goes, you need to eat high-quality food while you're pregnant. You need good sources of protein, complex carbohydrates, healthy fats, and foods rich in nutrients. I want people eating lots of vegetables and fruits. Just be sure to thoroughly wash those vegetables and fruits and thoroughly wash your hands. We're going to get into now foods to avoid in pregnancy. But the first thing to avoid is the artificial sweetener saccharin. 
this artificial sweetener can cross the placental barrier and then accumulates in fetal tissues. And that's just kind of gross to think about an artificial sweetener just loading up in baby. So avoid saccharin. Other artificial sweeteners are probably safe. We tell women to ingest less than 200 milligrams of caffeine a day. I've also seen less than 300. Uh, in general, you just don't want to be just crushing caffeine throughout the day because that can actually lead to problems like a growth restriction. But a f one or two small cups of coffee a day are generally considered safe. You're going to avoid any unpasteurized dairy products. Unpasteurized dairy can grow harmful organisms, things like Listeria and Brucella. These can cause a lot of problems in pregnancy, and so just avoid any type of dairy product that has not been pasteurized. You're going to avoid delicatessen foods like meat spreads, pate, soft cheeses, deli meat, hot dogs, smoked salmon, or any other really ready-to-eat foods that just kind of live in your refrigerator. All the foods I just mentioned are going to be okay if you cook them thoroughly, but if you take them out of the fridge and eat them, you will be at risk for listeria. I did a whole podcast on listeria just recently, so I'm not going to dig into the weeds on that. Please take a look at it if you want to, but the actual risk is is very, very low of contracting listeria, but the, the outcomes can be devastating for baby, and so it's kind of a small thing to avoid those foods for most people, so think about doing that. One of the biggest culprits of listeria, and, and it's still, by the numbers, very small, is Latino-style soft cheeses, things like queso fresco. And that's why women of Hispanic descent are probably disproportionately affected by listeria. So that is something to think about avoiding. Listeria can grow in small, or sorry, in cold temperatures, and so you want to make sure that you turn that fridge down. It needs to be less than 40 degrees Fahrenheit or less than 4 degrees Celsius, and that can be really, really important. One thing that I hear obstetricians say a lot is that if women have pasteurized soft cheese, they're going to be okay, and I did a deep dive into that in the last episode, Listeria. Just, just not true. Over half of the Listeria outbreaks were in cheeses that were pasteurized. They then had breakdowns in the post-pasteurization period, so that is not something that is true. While the overall risk of Listeria is extremely low, something like 3 per 100,000 by my calculations, it still is a, a real problem when it happens. I, I came up with a stat in the Listeria episode that women are three times more likely to die in an automobile accident than to get listeria. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about the overall risk and, and what could actually happen. We often tell women to avoid eating raw fish unless the raw fish is of extremely high sushi quality and you kind of know where it came from and that it's safe. But in general, be very careful about that. I would not pick up stuff from the grocery store. Fish have a lot of uh, potential bacteria on them and parasites. Remember the freshwater parasite, Diphylobothrium latum, the fish tapeworm. So make sure you're eating really high quality fish and make sure that you cook your fish thoroughly and that you uh, cook your shellfish thoroughly as well. Now when most people think about fish and especially cold water ocean fish, they think about mercury and the risks of mercury intake, the potential uh, neurological developmental issues that mercury might cause. And this is generally elemental, or sorry, organic uh, mercury compounds like methyl mercury. The sad thing is, is that we have literally polluted the 
We've polluted our oceans with mercury to such a horrible degree. It's coming from things like burning coal and gold mining, but the content of mercury in our oceans, it's high. It gets taken up by small organisms. As bigger organisms eat those organisms, that mercury starts to build up in their tissues. And by the time you get to the kind of higher predators in the ocean, we're talking about high levels of mercury. One of the studies that kind of uh, brought up the issue with mercury intake in pregnancy and showed that there was a problem with it was a, an observational study in the Faroe Islands. This is in the northern Atlantic. In this island, people typically ate uh, the traditional food of pilot whale meat. Pilot whales are basically two dolphins. They look like big dolphins. They're cool animals, but they eat fish, and so they accumulate very high amounts of mercury very very high and these people were eating these whale you know on daily basically and so they were getting very high rates of mercury and and it was shown in these cohort studies that uh, the kids that were born were ending up with with developmental issues and neurological issues however in other studies this has not been the case another study in England showed that women who are eating cold water fish three times a week more traditional fish actually had better outcomes, probably from the improved nutrition that comes along with the fish and the great nutrients that fish bring. There's a lot of fish that are kind of have lower levels of mercury that might be good choices. Things like Alaskan salmon and anchovies might have lower levels and be great choices. Any of your apex predator fish, especially ones that live in cold water, are going to be the more dangerous ones. Things like sharks, swordfish, mackerel, tuna, tilefish. Anything that's eating other smaller fish is going to accumulate high levels, especially when they're higher up the food chain. So be careful about that, but just know that if you're eating occasional seafood, it, you're probably going to be just just fine. It's just people that are eating, say, whale meat every day that, that ran into problems in those cohort studies. All this dietary stuff that I just went over, you hear a lot about it. People freak out about it. Oh, shoot, I accidentally ate this, and now I'm worried. There are so many women that eat all this stuff, break all these rules, and do totally fine. I think if you want to be really conservative, really safe, avoid these foods. Uh, my wife is uh, opted to avoid these foods in her pregnancy just because it's kind of a small price to pay for a few months and and you know it's your kid you want you want the best outcome from it for them so you want to be really careful but in general these are not all very well fleshed out and there's a lot to be said uh, one great example is the fact that maybe eating a little bit of fish is actually very beneficial and so maybe we're scaring too many people away from eating fish and that can be a bad thing Let's talk a little bit about exercise. Women should keep exercising throughout pregnancy. We call labor, labor for a reason. It is a ton of work. Women get exhausted. The better their physical functional capacity is, the better they handle that. In general, we're telling women to avoid starting some new extremely uh, difficult act activity that they hadn't done prior. So like a woman shouldn't take up marathon running during pregnancy that might be a little bit of a, a little bit too much stress on the body but do keep exercising sexual intercourse keep having sex sex is great it feels good if you want to have sex with your partner please continue to do so it helps build bonding which can be so important as you're bringing in this new life into the world
One great benefit of sex is that it can actually induce labor later in pregnancy. So after 38 weeks, if you're like, let's get this party started, sex can be a good way to get that going sometimes. And by by that same token, I would not necessarily avoid sex if you want to have it prior to 38 weeks. It's just kind of a nice benefit earlier on. There is a condition called placental previa where the the placenta kind of overrides the cervix and if you have that you might be advised to abstain from sexual intercourse but remember there's other types of sex so uh, get creative and have some fun and uh, don't stop sexual activity because of pregnancy finally I want to talk about activities to avoid in pregnancy just like the foods this is all pretty weak sauce pretty weak studies pretty pretty weak support for this but a lot of it makes pretty good sense the first thing is that you're going to want to avoid air travel after 36 weeks of pregnancy. Basically, in this time frame, you're, you're in a place where you could go into labor anytime, and you don't want to be up in a plane. You want to be around areas where you know where to go and what to do and, and, and deliver that baby with your obstetrician that you've been following with your whole time. The next thing is to avoid activities that could cause belly trauma. You're not going to want to be sparring in your martial art class, you know, doing... Uh, taekwondo and, and getting kicked in the belly. You're going to want to avoid activities like downhill skiing that are really aggressive and are going to cause a lot of bumping around where you could land flat on your belly. Of course, avoiding things like skydiving and stuff where you could have a high impact fall all seem to make a lot of sense to me. Scuba diving is something that gets brought up a lot. Most of the things you're going to read online are going to tell you don't scuba dive. A lot of it's related to the risk of decompression sickness, which as we know, it can be preventable with proper diving technique. If I was a pregnant woman who loved to dive, I will say I would be tempted to maybe call bluff on this one and just do safe, uh, not as deep dives. But in general, most people are going to tell you don't dive during pregnancy. Scuba dive, that is. Many sources out there are going to tell women to avoid hair dyeing and hair dyeing products. This is something that I see studies supporting and against all over the internet. They have these like really small correlations between diseases like uh, leukemias and other cancers and then other show studies don't show that type of effect. It's interesting in that most of our pharmaceutical industry was born out of the dye industry. And so it's kind of uh, just interesting to see that this is a big thing that's brought up. But again, not well understood. You're going to see information saying it's okay, not okay. In general, maybe just avoid dyeing your hair during pregnancy. Uh, I will say that if it's a risk during pregnancy, you know, it's worrisome that is this a risk throughout life? So I don't know. Maybe something to be fleshed out more. It's one of those occupational exposures for hair workers. And, and they're just recommended to kind of wear gloves and they're safe to do it throughout their pregnancy. So interesting stuff. You're going to want to avoid exposure to any toxic chemical, organic solvents, heavy metals, and environmental pollutants. This is probably very, very important. If you are a woman that is a factory worker or a laboratory worker, you're going to want to review all of the chemicals that you were exposed to in your job and make sure that they are safe during pregnancy. If safety is not well documented, I would just go ahead and avoid the chemical entirely. Workplace hazards can be a big issue. Um, 
pregnancy kind of calls a lot of them to light. If I was pregnant and working in a factory, I would definitely want to talk with my occupational safety officer about potential hazards. I would also consider visiting somebody who knows a little bit about occupational medicine and, and will say that if you're worried about this, Wonder Medicine would love to review your job and see if it's safe during pregnancy. One thing you want to get is all the material data sheets from all the chemicals you might potentially work with and then those need to be reviewed. I think this is an important thing. Avoiding chemicals, the organic solvents, environmental toxins, and heavy metals is probably a really, really important thing. Women should avoid unnecessary medications. If you can abstain from medications entirely during pregnancy and life, that is, I would probably consider doing so. And I'm, a, of course, a medical doctor. You definitely want to avoid any medications which are known to be harmful. In general, a go-to medication in pregnancy for pain is Tylenol. A lot of women will reach for ibuprofen, but ibuprofen actually isn't uh, thought to be safe in pregnancy. It can cause premature closing of, of the uh, fetal circulation, which can cause harm to baby and close that uh, ductus arteriosus too early. So avoid ibuprofen and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. There's really too many drugs to talk about avoiding, but in general you're going to want to look all those up and make sure that they're safe whenever you take them. Avoid ionizing radiation. This stuff has a clear harm to baby and you do not want to have high rates of radiation during pregnancy. So try and stay away from things like x-rays. Cover the belly really good if you absolutely need one. Don't get things like CTs. These can be really harmful for the baby. Driving automobiles is something that is always dangerous. In the United States it kills 38,000 people alone every single year. Since about six million women are pregnant every year. I estimated that perhaps around sorry, perhaps around 684 pregnant women are killed every year in automobile accidents. Probably a much much higher number are injured in automobile accidents. This is why it is so important to wear a three-point seat belt and to drive with great caution while you're pregnant. I mean, people are just horrible at driving, and, and please, this is one of the biggest things that could harm you and your baby during pregnancy is automobile accidents. The next thing to discuss a little bit is herbal supplements. There are many herbal supplements that you probably should avoid in pregnancy. There's not great evidence for some of this stuff, but uh, a few things like ephedra and sal palmetto, which can affect hormone stuff, are, are good to stay away from. In general, people just need to start treating herbs like medications. I mean, they, they often are medications. People are, naturopaths are using them like medications, so I don't know why people have this idea that, oh, herbs are safe. You can't have both. You can't have herbs that are medications and then herbs that are co totally safe. If they have effects on the body, they're going to potentially have negative effects. So be careful about that. One great exception uh, to the herbs is ginger. We know that ginger is awesome for preventing nausea during the first trimester, so feel free to eat as much ginger as possible. Probably a lot of other herbs are very safe in pregnancy. You just want to look at them one by one, just like you would look at your medicines one by one. The final thing that gets brought up a lot are hot tubs. People are, or pregnant women are told to avoid hot tubs, particularly in the first trimester. 
getting too hot during these first several weeks of pregnancy has been shown to potentially lead to neural tube defects and also other potential problems. Again, very poor evidence, but the downside is low, you know, just staying out of the hot tub. I mean, granted, some people love the hot tub, but it, it, maybe it's a small price to pay if, if there is truly an increased rate of harm. Okay, that was kind of a bear. We kind of went through all of pregnancy as far as what things to expect in the regular prenatal care, as well as all of the major recommendations for how to stay safe. There's probably a lot of other things to say, but be really cautious about anything you read or hear. There's so much information out there that just is based on nothing or based on something someone said 50 years ago and it's just gotten carried through time. I would like to thank my wonderful wife Carly for carrying my unborn child or sorry our unborn child and I would like to congratulate everyone else that has a pregnancy right now. This is going to be an awesome time. I have so many friends who are pregnant right now. I'm so thrilled to see such wonderful people bringing new people into the world. And I have a really bright, warm feeling about the future because of all that going on. Stay safe out there, everybody. And if you're pregnant and you want to have a baby, stay pregnant. Signing out. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.